You're listening to the Assembly of Yahweh Sermon Podcast, recorded in Cisco, Texas. For more information, please visit hallelujah.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, I hope everybody is uh, having a great day. Hope you've had a great week. And uh, here we are at the most blessed day of the week, the Sabbath day, which I'm so thankful to see roll around every week. I'm so grateful to be here. It's good to see you all today. I'm so grateful to have this opportunity. And today, as you possibly can see on the screen, I would like to speak about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The popular thought in our culture is that the Messiah abolished the Torah. And including abolishing the Torah would be the principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is spoken of in the Torah. And the popular idea is that he replaced this eye-for-eye and tooth-for-tooth principle with something different. And so, in regard to that, let's read the record of his sayings in Matthew 5, 38 through 43. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, Turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And so with that in mind, let's delve further into this. And why is this important? Because if it is true that the Messiah abolished this Torah principle, then why not also believe the popular notion that he abolished the entire Torah, commonly called the law? However, scripture and historical context show that instead of abolishing the Torah, the Messiah corrected the misinterpretation and abuse of the Torah And that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth means the penalty is to fit the crime. And so as we continue, we will discover that Scripture and the historical context uh, supports these conclusions. So let's look at the Messiah's teaching. Who could imagine that Yeshua changed or abolished the law in verses 38 through 43, which we just read from Matthew 5, after his emphatic proclamation earlier in this same chapter of Matthew 5, in verses 17 through 18, where he said, Do not think that I am come to destroy, or that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill Now, fulfill obviously doesn't mean destroy. In fact, if you look up fulfill, it means to fill up, which means to do. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And so let's look at this jot and tittle. I spoke of this in in my message last month, but... uh, I want to review it again this month, and it'll be a little shorter this month, but for those who uh, did not get to hear it last month, this will, uh, I think there's still enough information in here to to, uh, support uh, what I want to show here. And 
The fact is, is that the jot corresponds to yod, the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And a tittle is a small stroke of a pen or a dot. And we see this exhibited in other translations. Notice the NIV 2011 edition of Matthew 5.18. In the part that I have highlighted there, it says, Not the smallest letter, nor the least stroke of a pen. That those won't disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In the Revised Standard Version of Matthew 5.18, it says, Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. As I pointed out last month, iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, and it's even made its way into our English language in the phrase, not one iota, meaning not the slightest amount. And I gave an example sentence last month where I said, Chuck Henry does not have one iota of bricklaying experience. And so that's how that's used in our English language. We still use that type of phrase, and it means not the slightest amount. Well, in the same way, Yeshua made the statement, not the slightest amount will pass from the law or from the Torah until everything is accomplished. Let's also look at Luke 16, 17. From the NIV 2011 edition, it says, it is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. The Revised Standard Version of that verse says, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So has the law become void? No, not according to the Messiah. To further put this in perspective, the next page displays the Hebrew alphabet. And so... I displayed this also last month, but just a quick review here. So the Hebrew alphabet and the jot and the tittle, and I'll scroll this up to where we can see the entire alphabet. So even if you're not familiar with the letters in the Hebrew alphabet, scan through here and see if you can spot uh, spot the smallest letter in that Hebrew alphabet. A clue is is that it's highlighted in the yellow box, and uh, it's the yod. And also, here is an example of a tittle, a small mark at the top of the Hebrew letter Lamed. And so, what the Messiah said is not even these small little things will pass from the law until all is fulfilled, or in Luke's account, as the way he puts it, is that it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. So it's not very easy for one least little part of the law to fail. Have heaven and earth passed away? No, we are still here living on this earth and the heaven is above us. And so this vantage point gives a clear view that nothing has passed from the law. And so what I want to go on to examine now is the fact that Yeshua corrected the misinterpretation and abuse of the Torah regarding eye for eye and tooth for tooth, the NIV study Bible states, this represents a statement of principle. The penalty is to fit the crime, not exceed it. An actual eye or tooth was not to be required, nor is there evidence that such a penalty was ever exacted. Messiah, like the the middle-of-the-road Pharisees, the school of Hillel, 
objected to an extremist use of this judicial principle to excuse private vengeance, such as by the strict Pharisees, the school of Shammai. Also, the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary states, To us it seems as plain as possible that our Master's one object is to contrast the traditional perversions of the law with the true sense of it as expounded by Himself. And we see further proof from the context of Matthew 5. If we will just carefully read the context of Matthew 5, and compare it to what the Torah says. For example, nowhere does the Torah state, whoever slaps you on the cheek, you shall slap him back. Nowhere does the Torah state, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Rather, what does the Torah state? It states, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? Therefore, the context of Matthew 5 reveals that Yeshua did not contrast His own teaching to that of the Torah. Instead, he corrected the misinterpretation and abuse of the Torah. And I'd like you to notice that a slap on the cheek is an insult. Let's compare the following scriptures. Lamentations 3.30, first from the New King James Version. It says, Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. In the Revised Standard Version, it says, let him, uh, let him give his cheek to the smiter and be filled with insults. Also, Proverbs twelve sixteen from the New King James Version says, A fool's wrath is known at once, but a prudent man covers shame. While the Revised Standard Version states, The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent man ignores an insult. Because a slap on the cheek is an insult, Yeshua used this to illustrate that the retaliatory view of eye for eye and tooth for tooth is a misinterpretation of the Torah. And I have the eye for eye and tooth for tooth references here in the Torah. And without reading all of these passages, because I have so many more to cover, I want to read the first one, Exodus 21, 23 through 25. Which says, But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. It's also found in the passage Leviticus twenty four, seventeen through twenty two, and Deuteronomy nineteen twenty one. So let's look a little more at this idea that eye for eye and tooth for tooth means that the penalty is to fit the crime. And we're going to spend a while in Exodus 21 and 22. And notice that the crimes and the corresponding penalties in this section of Scripture will demonstrate that eye for eye and tooth for tooth means the penalty is to fit the crime. So first, let's look at, in Exodus 21, 12 through 14, the case of he who strikes a man so that he dies. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie and wait, but Elohim delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint you, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And so we find in the case of murder that indeed 
life goes for life. However, if it was an accident, if it was manslaughter, then we read elsewhere in the scriptures that Yahweh provided cities of refuge to which the manslayer could flee uh, to avoid uh, any penalty. Um, and so, and so this and this verse to me kind of has some kind of has some strange wording in it. Uh, I'm not criticizing the scriptures at all, but just it's 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 not put in a way that we are used to hearing it when it says, "But Elohim delivered him into his hand." That is evidently another way of saying an accident occurred and that a person committed manslaughter. Notice that the verse starts by saying, however, if he did not lie in wait, meaning that this was not premeditation, it was not murder. And so, as I pointed out, in verse 12, the case of murder, life went for life. In verse 13, if it was unintentional, he could flee to a city of refuge for protection. However, if it wasn't intentional, then life is given for life. Now let's look at the case of striking father or mother in Exodus 21.15. He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. And so the penalty in this case is death. But notice that in this case, Scripture does not state that the father or mother died. It simply states he who strikes his father or his mother, which is a tremendously dishonorable act. But the father or mother didn't die, and yet the penalty in this case is death for such a serious crime. Now let's also look at the case of kidnapping, verse 16. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. So here the penalty is death. In this case, the victim, the person who got kidnapped, is yet alive and is either sold or found with the perpetrator, but the penalty for this terrible act is death. And I think that's something that we need to think about. I wish our society realized how serious kidnapping is. If you stop and think about it, isn't kidnapping a horrible, horrible crime? Can we imagine if someone was to kidnap one of our children? That is so, so heinous. And so the death for kidnapping, or excuse me, the penalty for kidnapping, according to Torah, is the death penalty. Now let's look at the case of cursing father or mother in verse 17. He who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. And so we're finding a lot of cases here to begin with where the victim is yet alive and yet the penalty is death because these crimes are so serious. It is so important that we honor our father and mother and not curse them nor strike them. Let's move on to verses 18 and 19. The case of an argument when once one man strikes another and he does not die but is confined to bed. So it says, if men contend with each other and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and he does not die but is confined to his bed... If he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. And so the penalty for this is loss of time expense paid to the victim. And I've got in parentheses here, work loss coverage, question mark. The reason I have that is because I used to work in the insurance insurance industry And this is what we call this type of thing is work loss coverage, which means that 
This, is, uh, this was a common thing on, in auto insurance where you could have work loss coverage on your policy and if you got hurt in an accident where you couldn't work, then the policy would pay a certain amount for work loss. That's what this sounds like that is being provided for in the Torah, that he must pay for this person's loss of time uh, because he injured him. Also, medical expenses seem to be included because it says, and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. As an example, suppose the victim's leg is broken. Notice that the remedy is not that the victim, once healed, repays the offender by breaking his leg. Now that's, that's the common way that people have in their mind that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth works. They have this retaliatory view that, hey, if a person does something to you, you go and repay him likewise. But as we are seeing in the Torah, and as we will continue to see in the Torah, the penalty is to fit the crime. So the offender, does if he has his leg broken by somebody, the remedy is not that then he gets better and then he goes and breaks his neighbor's leg. The... the um, The remedy for this is much different than that and is very just and fair. Verses 20 through 21. So we're just flowing through Exodus uh, chapter 21 here. So we'll go to verses 20 through 21. The case of beating a servant. If a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished for he is his property. So if the servant dies, it appears that the penalty was death. It says he shall surely be punished. And we know that we've read about life for life. If the servant dies not, the man has injured his own property. There is no further penalty. Verses 22 through 25, the case of injuring a pregnant woman and causing her to deliver prematurely. Verses 22 through 25. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So in regard to the penalty, first notice that the woman is injured and gives birth prematurely. Yet, if no harm follows, that is, both the baby and the mother are safe, the offender is punished according to what the husband and the judges determine. Notice that the husband does not repay the offender by going and punching the offender's pregnant wife, if he has one. Now the phrase, if any harm follows, that is to either the baby or the mother, then the penalty is to fit the crime up to and including life for life in the case of death. And by the way, this is an example that tells us babies in the womb should not be put to death. They are, they are important people as are people living outside the womb. Exodus 21, 26 through 27, the case of a servant who suffers the loss of an eye or a tooth. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. 
The penalty here is that the servant goes free. Notice that the servant does not repay his master by putting out the master's eye or knocking out the master's tooth. Verses uh, 28 through 31, the case of an ox goring a person to death. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned, and his flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past, and it has been made known to his owner, and he has not kept it confined, so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death." If there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life whatever is imposed on him. Whether it is gored a son or gored a daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done to him. So the penalty, if an ox with no previous goring history gores a man or woman to death, the ox is to be stoned but cannot be eaten, and the owner is acquitted though he suffers the loss of the ox, including the loss of its use as food. However, if the ox had a previous goring history and the owner was warned but did not keep the ox confined, the death penalty applies to the ox and its owner. Verse 30 provides an exception to the death penalty for the owner such that if a fine is imposed, the owner may pay this fine in exchange for his life. We can compare this to Genesis 9.5, which says, Surely your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. For your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. And so I just thought that is very interesting because way back in Genesis 9, we see Yahweh saying, Not only will he require the life of man at the hand of man, but he will also require it at the hand of a beast. And so this is what we find specified in Exodus as we are reading through these laws. Verse 32, the case of an ox goring a servant. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. So the penalty, the ox is stoned. The fine is paid to the, to the servant's master. And evidently, the ox's death sentence indicates that he gored the servant to death. The case of an uncovered pit, verses 33 through 34. And if a man opens a pit or if a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or a donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to their owner, but the dead animal shall be his. The penalty, the offender must pay for the animal falling to its death in the pit. The ownership of the dead animal transfers to the offender. Notice that the previous owner of the animal does not repay the offender by strategically digging a pit into which the offender's animals might fall. And so isn't it, isn't it interesting that we see as we go through these, we're seeing how to love our neighbor how to watch out for our neighbor and his property. We should be very careful about when there is a pit that we have made or uncovered that we then cover that thing so that nobody, including an animal that might fall into it, would get hurt. So we can see this in action in various ways about how we should love our neighbor as ourselves. 
The Bible instructs us on these things. Isn't it great that we have Yahweh's instructions that we can read? The case of an ox killing another, verses 35 through 36. If one man's ox hurts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it, and the dead ox they shall also divide. Or if it was known that the ox tended to thrust in time past and its owner has not kept it confined, he shall surely pay ox for ox and the dead animal shall be his own. So the penalty is the live ox is sold, the owners divide the money and the dead ox. However, if the ox had a previous goring history and its owner did not keep him confined, the owner replaces the ox and retains the dead ox. Exodus 22, verse 1, the case of theft of oxen or sheep that is then slaughtered or sold. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. The penalty is that the ox, for oxen, the restitution rate is five to one, and for sheep, the restitution rate is four to one. That might make you think twice before going and stealing somebody's ox or sheep. Notice that the victim was not to repay the thief by pulling off a cattle heist of his own against the thief. The, the, the repayment or the retribution here was that the offender was to, was to make restitution by giving to the owner even more than what he stole. The case of a thief killed at night Verse 2, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his blood shed. So if a thief is killed while breaking in at night, there is no blood guilt. Verse 3, quoted shortly, clarifies that verse 2 addresses the nighttime hours. So I wanted to bring that out because the verse says, if a thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his blood shed. We'll continue to read. And we will see that this is during the nighttime hours. So at night, one could not discern the perpetrator's motive, which could potentially include bodily harm to the home's occupants. Now we go to verses 3 and 4. If the sun has risen on him. So this tells us that the previous case was at night. And now we're transferring to a case that's during the daylight hours. If the sun has risen on him. Then there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or donkey or sheep, he shall restore double. And so we see that the penalty is, if the sun has risen on him, that is, if the thief is killed while breaking in during the day, then there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. During the day, the thief could potentially be identified, and one could also perceive whether his only intention was thievery or if it also involved assault, in which case the person has the right to defend himself and his family. A surviving thief should restore his theft in full or else be sold into servitude. That is another deterrent, another strong deterrent to theft. You might think twice if you don't have a way to repay that you're going to be sold into servitude for your theft. If the living ox, donkey, or sheep is found alive with the thief, the restitution rate is double. Now we go to verse 5, the case of a man's animal grazing on another's property. 
If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. The penalty here is that restitution is made by the animal's owner from the best of his own field and vineyard. Once again, I didn't put this down here, but again, we can think about how the, the repayment is not then that the other guy got to turn his cattle and his animals out on the land of, of the person who allowed this to occur and let them graze all over his land, but restitution was made by the animal's owner from the best of his own field and vineyard. So once again, we see the deterrent there. Not only did he have to repay, but he had to repay from the best of his own field and vineyard. He probably would have rather had his own animals grazing on the best part of his field and vineyard, but he has to give this uh, to, the, to the other person because of his negligence. Verse 6, the case of uncontrolled fire. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that stacked grain, standing grain, or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. So the penalty is the one who started the fire must make restitution. Notice here that the victim did not repay the offender by setting the offender's field on fire. The case of personal responsibility when entrusted with another's property, verses 7 through 9. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep, and it is stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. For any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, or for any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whomever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. So the penalty is that if the thief is found, he is to restore double. If the thief is not found, the trustee appears before the judges to determine if there is guilt on his behalf. And then in verse 9, I like the way the NIV translates it. It says, In all cases of illegal possession of an ox, a donkey, a sheep, a garment, or any other lost property about which somebody says, This is mine, both parties are to bring their cases before the judges. The one whom the judges declare guilty must pay back double to his neighbor. And here's the case of an animal delivered for safekeeping in verses 10 through 13. If a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep, and it dies, is hurt, or driven away, no one seeing it, then an oath of Yahweh shall be between them both that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. But if, in fact, it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. If it is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence, and he shall not make good what was torn. And so we see the penalty is that if the animal dies, is hurt, or driven away without being seen, the trustee gives an oath that he is innocent, which the owner of the animal is to accept. So it would be as if the guy keeping the animal says, hey, I don't know what occurred. Uh, I don't know anything about what transpired. I didn't see anybody take it, and so forth. And then the owner is to accept that. However, if the animal was stolen, restitution is required. Uh, 
And this is probably because the trustee should have kept a better watch on the valuable animal. And so this tells us that whenever our neighbor gives us something, he, uh, he is entrusting us to watch over and safely keep something that is his, we should really take stock of that. And we should uh, really try hard to take care of it and make sure it's kept safe. If the animal was torn to pieces from an attack by another animal, then the trustee brings the remains as evidence and no restitution is required. Easy enough to understand. You can prove that the animal was torn up and that's how it deceased. The cases of borrowing and renting, verses 14 through 15. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. If its owner was with it, he shall not make it good. It was, if it was hired, it came for its hire. So the penalty here, borrowing with the owner not present. If bodily injury or death to the animal occurs with the owner not present, the borrower must make it good. Borrowing with the owner present. If the owner is present, the borrower is not responsible, probably since the owner being present has the responsibility of caring for his animal. Renting. If the animal was hired, the money paid for the hire covers the loss. The case of a murdered family member. It is true that the relative of a murdered family member could execute the murderer, but bear in mind that this was judgment from Yahweh. In the case of manslaughter, not murder, Yahweh appointed cities of refuge to which the person could flee, as we noted earlier. Deuteronomy 19, 4 through 6. And this is the case of the manslayer who flees there, speaking fleeing to the cities of refuge, that he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in time past, as when a man goes to the woods with his neighbor to cut timber, and his hand swings a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he shall flee to one of these cities and live. And so the verse describes an accident occurring, gives an example of that. He shall flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long, and kill him, though he was not deserving of death, since he had not hated the victim in time past. And so after examining all these different types of cases and looking at the penalty and noticing how that the penalty is to fit the crime, I want us to look at more about repaying evil for evil or about retaliation. And I want to mention as we look at this that I want to explain that the context of this discussion is the proper interpretation of the Torah principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in governing society. This context has nothing to do with actions which might become necessary in cases of self-defense. So as seen in the example cited previously, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth never meant to repay evil for evil. But instead, the penalty is to fit the crime. In other words, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth never provided an excuse for an individual to retaliate and do unto others as they have done unto him. 
Accordingly, there is harmony in both the older and the newer writings on this matter, as demonstrated in the verses which follow. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Proverbs 20.22 Do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for Yahweh, and he will save you. Proverbs 24.29 Do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Zechariah 8.16-17 These are the things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. And do not love a false oath. For all these for all these are things that I hate, says Yahweh. Matthew seven twelve. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Mark twelve thirty one. the second great commandment. And the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Luke 6, 31. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. Romans twelve seventeen, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. 1 Thessalonians five fifteen, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. And 1 Peter 3, 8 through 11. Finally, all of you, be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And so now I arrive at the conclusion. Yeshua corrected the misinterpretation and abuse of the Torah principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This principle teaches that the penalty is to fit the crime. This is important because if it is true that the Messiah abolished this Torah principle, then why not also believe the popular notion that he abolished the entire Torah? Yeshua instructed us not even to think that he destroyed the law or the prophets, as we saw in Matthew 5, 17 through 18. Moreover, not a tittle or a jot can be removed from the law until all is fulfilled. And according to Luke's account, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than it is for one tittle one slightest mark of the law to fail. Therefore, let us live like the Messiah lived and heed the instruction of Yahweh's Torah. May Yahweh richly bless you today on His Sabbath day.